and Ligonier Ministries. If you know anything about RC, you'll know that uh, you'll find more of a, at least an intellectual or a theological, a biblical stimulation from RC than just about any place. Anyway, these things are free of charge. Um, nobody's going to ask you to send any money um, to anything. Um, the, the thought behind, the thought of Grace Venture was, uh, what, what could we do better with money than to stimulate our people into a daily devotional life? So this is, this is at your disposal. Um, this is May's. Um, this is the 3rd of May. And, and I thought this quite interesting. Um, this month's, he's talking about the Da Vinci hoax. <laughs> I'm ahead of RC. <laughs> that made me feel real good. But if you want one of those, that's, that's at your disposal. Uh, take your Bible, if you will, and open it back up to uh, Romans 8. And let me um, uh, go back to uh, verses 33 and 34. Um, I guess I do this every week, and I'm sorry. I guess I'm, I have a conscience about it, but um, it's, it's verses like 34 that really get me in trouble. Um, let, me, let me just show you what I'm talking about. Ed, um, let me just read verse 34, and this is somewhat of an aside, an introductory aside. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, my point is simply this. Um, I think some of you sit out there uh, faithfully on Wednesday nights and think, you know, he really could pick up the pace. Uh, he doesn't really have to go that slow. And, you know, it's the truth. I could. But you look at a, a verse like 34. Do you know what's in that verse? Do you see what's in there? Um, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Okay, there, there's the whole atonement. Um, more than that, who was raised. There's the resurrection, who is at the right hand of God. Well, that uh, would open us uh, to the uh, ascension of Christ and something that you may not have ever heard, the session of Christ, that is, that he's seated at the right hand of God. I mean, we could spend a, work on, a week on the ascension of Christ, who indeed is interceding for us. And there's the intercession of Christ, which is spoken of much in the book of Hebrews. Do you see, guys, we could, spend a, we could spend a week just on who indeed is interceding for us. We could do that. I mean, and it's, it's valuable material. When's the last time you heard anything about the intercession of Christ, you know? Now, I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, I mean, you could spend five or six weeks, if not more, in verse 34. So, and, and the other thing that, that I, I want to, I, I just want to try and convince you of, when you think of the Apostle Paul, what, what you think of, you, I think in the main, people think of the Apostle Paul as the, as the theologian of the New Testament, the one who uh, gives us great theological works like the book of Romans, like the book of Galatians, um, uh, Ephesians. Oh, but in this section of the book of Romans, which is considered the great Magna Carta of, um, theologically of Christianity, Paul has spent an entire chapter trying to help the Christian church at Rome feel safe. Um, it is very important to Paul that God's people have a sense of their own everlasting, spiritual, eternal 
safety. This is not Paul the theologian. This is Paul the pastor. He goes over this, and, and you know that I've gone over it quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but he goes over it quite a bit. It's like he takes this diamond, this big old diamond, and this big old diamond is the safety and security of the believer. And he says, now, now look here, y'all. I, I want you to see this diamond from here. And then he turns it a bit. And there's a whole new facet over here. And so he says, you know, <laughs> you also need to see this thing of your own sense of personal safety. You need to see it from, from this angle. And then he turns it again. Oh, no, oh, I just found another one. You, you, you need to see it from this angle and from this and this and this. And so he gives you, he gives you all of these different looks at this, this, what he considers to be greatly important to the overall spiritual health of God's people. And so, um, Romans 8 is considered, you know, almost the, uh, you know, I said this before, uh, that Romans is considered the apex of the New Testament. No, no, uh, yeah. And then the, 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 uh, the, the apex of the New Testament is Romans, and then the peak of the apex is Romans 8, and then the, the, the top of the peak is verse 28. I mean, this is, this is a, a widely known, appreciated chapter, and it's all about your safety. That's important to the pastor, the Apostle Paul. So, um, when you all go home tonight and you're driving home and, and um, you know, talking bad about me, um, just understand that I'm trying to be I'm trying to be your pastor. I'm trying to be Pauline in my pastoring of a flock. And it's important to him and it's important. And, and I, I really do believe I think I understand. Not, not so much everything he says. I think I understand, though, the importance of safety. Or that is the Christian sense of safety. I think I do see that. I see how vitally important it is that you know that you're safe. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the intro uh, to going slow. <laughs> Two weeks ago, uh, we were in verse 33, and um, I pointed out several things. That's what happens when you pray this much. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, King's X. Um, Um, uh, two weeks ago, I was talking to you about verse, uh, I think it's broken. I think the little, little thing, uh, is that broken? That no, you're good. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's uh-huh, broken. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Maybe we can just wrap it around your top. <laughs> I, I probably don't need it. Yeah, yeah, we could just lay it here. Yeah. It's going to be in your way, probably. Probably, but oh, yeah. we'll do our best. Um, No, how's that? <laughs> um, two weeks ago, when I was last with you, we looked at verse 33, and, um, and we were talking. I, I said that overall, if you take kind of a panorama of verse 33, the, the relationship that the believer has with God is being described in legal terms. Um, if you want to have nice, um, sweet feelings, which is not a bad thing. I'm not uh, denigrating that at all. 
then you may want to concentrate on things like the fatherhood of God or the sonship of the believer. But, but here, Paul is describing the relationship that God's people have with him in legal terms. Um, because normally when Satan accuses you, uh, he is going to accuse you on some grounds of your violation of law. Um, when, when your conscience is aching the, the worst, it is normally over some kind of violation of law, of standards that you know that exist. And so, as I've said so many times, I say this all the time, Satan doesn't create the situations. He just takes advantage of us in the midst of them. And so he reminds us of those things, accusing us of our violations of the law. So what I said to you two weeks ago is that in verse 33, God is, uh, well, no, not in verse 33, but we know God to be the, not only the, the lawgiver, he is the judge. And in verse 33, it is said that that lawgiver and that judge is the one who justified you. So when Satan does remind you of your violations, then you must say in reply to your anxious soul, yes, I am a violator of the law, but it is the lawgiver and the judge who has, is the one who has justified me. The big question before us in this section is, is there ever any possibility that God is ultimately going to condemn me? Is there ever anything that's going to come up where God is going to say, Oh, well, yeah, I forgot about that. I'm sorry. I, you're lost. Um, no one can lay anything to the charge against me because I am clothed in a righteousness. Now, you, you might wonder, what righteousness are you talking about, Jimmy? And I'm going to come to that before I'm finished. But, um, gang, I, I am not only forgiven, I'm justified. That's the, that's the language of verse 35. And that's legal language. I'm justified. I'm declared not guilty. I, I tell you what, how about this? Imagine a trial. And, um, you know, you're the, you're the accused. And your, uh, your defense attorney stands up and gives this brilliant case in your defense. I mean, just sets forth all kinds of reasons why you should be, uh, uh, you know, freed. Um, and when he's finished, the prosecutor steps up and he says, you know, that, that was very well done, Mr. Defense. And, uh, and, I, and all that's very, very nice. But... Um, the defense has forgotten one minor little point um, because there is a detail in the law. You know, it's, uh, it's in subsection 11, uh, paragraph 4, uh, sentence 3. And uh, therefore, based on that, you're, you're a goner. So, so Paul is trying to answer, is there ever any kind of tiny thing that might not get address that is going to ultimately condemn me. And so he's using this language, this legal language to assure you that, that the law has been satisfied. That, that, that is never going to happen in God's courtroom because God is the judge and he is the lawgiver. And we are not cleared only against one of our violations, but against all of the violations. And, and, and as far as I am concerned, the law has been satisfied. I am dead to the law. 
You remember we talked about that two weeks ago? I talked about the mercy seat and pouring blood and the clamorings of the law and all that business. So, in the midst of those times where your conscience is aching and you are troubled and your palms sweat at night and you're losing sleep over something you've done, um, I, you know, maybe my conscience is more active than the rest of you, but um, you know that, that seems to, maybe I'm a pervert, but that seems to happen to me on a fair degree of frequency. Um, if the only thing that you've got to point to is your experience, he is going to eat your lunch. That is, the devil will. That is, if all, if all you can say is, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> yeah, that I do, but I, oh boy, did I ever, but you know, I did, um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I walked forward at the end of that crusade, <laughs> or I, um, you know, I, you know, I did go through confirmation, but if that's all you've got to point to, is some kind of, you, you, some part of your experience, I'm telling you, you're, you're going to be troubled often in prayer. This is legal language. To let you know that the law has nothing to do with you. It's been quieted. And it's been quieted by the provisions of the law giver and the judge himself. Okay, says Paul. We move to verse 34. Okay. Okay, Jimmy, I understand. Okay, Paul, I understand that God the Father is not going to condemn me. But um, but since Jesus is going to be the judge, <laughs> I, th- yeah, I think I read that someplace. I think it was in John 5 or something. I, I read that Jesus is going to, you know, that the God has given him the, the right to judge. Uh, what about him? You know, the, I got this thing about verse 33 saying God the Father is going to, he's justified. Okay, okay, okay. But uh, in verse 34 here, um, uh, what, what about Christ? Who is to condemn? There it is again, this con- condemnation that's back up. Christ Jesus? Could possibly Christ Jesus be the one that would condemn me? Maybe not the first person of the Trinity, but maybe the second person of the Trinity? Now, gang, as, as I hinted earlier, verse 34 is a wonderful summary of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. There's a lot crammed in this little verse, verse 34, but I want to suggest to you that the, the most important words of verse 34 are the last two. For us, who indeed is interceding for us. All that's listed there that that is a summary of the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ is done for us. Those are are significant words, guys. When we talk about the substitutionary or the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, there it is. Uh, This is work done for us. Okay, so who condemns? Christ? Not Christ. Not after all He's done for us. I mean, he died, he was resurrected, he's raised at the right hand of God, he's indeed in the inner... No, no, no. It's unthinkable that Christ should be the cause of our condemnation because it's, he's the one who did all this great mediatorial role of work for us. Um, so, no. The second person of the Trinity won't be involved in your condemnation either. Now, let me... Let me let me uh, take you down just a little side road, which I'm not sure is a side road, but we'll see. I, I said a moment ago that justification doesn't simply mean that I'm forgiven. It means that in basically I am dead to the law. The law has nothing to do with me anymore. The law cannot condemn me. And I, and I use this terminology. I said because I am clothed or arrayed in the righteousness, in this righteousness. Now, what is this righteousness? 
And that's what I want to do. Oh, that's a wonderful sound, isn't it? Um, we'll get that fixed next week. Um, I, I want to talk to you about that. that uh, it, it, you know, I hope if you've never heard this, you, you might like this. You might enjoy that. Um, for what purposes, um, for what reasons legally did Jesus die? There were two. Um, first of all, he, he, he died to render perfect obedience to the law. That demand for perfection is, is accomplished in the life of Jesus Christ. Now guys, in theological terms, they call that uh, the active obedience of Christ. Now, um, we'll come I'll explain it in just a second, but um, why, why did he have I mean, why did he come? Well, the first thing he came for is to render a, 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 a complete and total obedience to the demands of the law. Now, that's called his active obedience. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, that you are not saved by his death. You are saved by his life. That was the first reason. He came to render a, a full and complete a positive obedience to the demands of God's law. That's called, in theological circles, it's just called an active obedience. Everything that you saw him do, you know, he stood before audiences and he says, um, can anyone accuse me of sin? The audience was silent. He was at that time fulfilling all of the rigid demands of God's law. It's called active obedience. The other thing that he came to do was to become the object of all of the combined wrath for the violations of his law, and that is called his passive obedience, which is a really an unfortunate term because there's nothing passive about Jesus dying on the cross. But it comes from a it comes from a Latin term. You know, we talk about the passion of Christ. It's in the same cognate family with that Latin word when it talks about the passive obedience of Christ. So he came to, to render a positive obedience to God's law, but he also came to become the penalty of that law and, the, and what it demanded and what it exacts because of sin and transgression. Now, guys, I said a moment ago that justification uh, is not simply being forgiven that I'm clothed in righteousness. What righteousness? This righteousness. That's what becomes. Everything that God demanded. I got it! So does every believer. And then every piece of penalty that was due for my violations was broached in his passive obedience. That's why, that's why he's hanging up there, folks. His death fully satisfies justice both positively and negatively. So that becomes mine. That's the righteousness that I stand in. So every demand that the law has possibly made has been fulfilled in, in my relationship. So the law cannot, it has nothing to do with me. Now guys, this is an important part. This is the important point. That means 
that if we who believe in Christ were to ever be punished now, God would be unjust. Do you understand that? That is, if God were to condemn me now, God would be made unjust because my sin has already been condemned. He would be condemning it twice. My sin is already punished. And so for Him to punish me is to punish it twice. Um... God is true to his own promises, to his own statements, and his son's work is the complete satisfaction of all of his demands for positive obedience and for penalty. Now, since justice has already been met in the death of Christ, It does not have to be met again by you. I, I'm going to tell you a story, I, and, and I hesitate to do this because I, I think that so many of you have probably heard this story, but if you've never heard this story, you're kind of new to things, you'll love this story. I mean, it's, I remember the first time I ever heard it, it was Jim Kennedy. I've been a Christian, became a Christian in 1970, and we stayed about another year and a half, a year and nine months in Fort Lauderdale. And, and uh, Jim Kennedy, uh, he, he, was, he was very fine. I remember this story from one of his sermons. And uh, and by the way, I heard it then in, say, 71. I probably read it another 12 times in Christian books. So, I mean, if you do any reading, yeah, I'm sure you've read about this too. So just kind of bear with me and just kind of nod your head and, you know, poke your wife and say, I don't remember that one. They all ran out. But if you haven't heard this one, you, you'll, uh, you'll like it. Um, this, this, this story comes out of the Midwest. And uh, it comes out of the, uh, the wheat, the granary, the breadbasket of the country. Um, and it, I think it probably would be uh, situated in about the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s. Well, the, <clears throat> the greatest fear of the, of the prairie farmer was a prairie fire. That was, a, that was a, an enormous, and if you looked off into the, into the horizon, which is flat as the Brent will tell you, uh, is the back of your hand, and you saw smoke off into the horizon, you knew, and the winds were blowing in your direction, you knew you had a matter of minutes, maybe a couple of hours to prepare, because the thing, there's nothing to stop it. There was only one solution, it had nothing to do with water. And the solution was simply this, that a, that a knowledgeable farmer would go out close to his, his um, close to him, and he would burn up about an acre of land. He would all he would scorch the the acre of land and do it fast. And then he would take everything that he possessed, no, no, everything that he valued, everything that was a treasure to him, his his family and and heirlooms and and cows and everything that was of value to him. He'd take it, he'd, he'd stand in the middle of that scorched acre. And then the prairie fire would arrive. And when it got to that acre, it would separate and divide and go around them. Because as you can see, there's nothing else in the acre to burn. It's already been burned. And the place of the greatest safety is the place 
has already been scorched. I love that story. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is a big acre of scorch in a place called Calvary. And when you stand there, wrath can't overtake you. Because there's nothing there to burn. It's already been burned. The, the, the justice of God has been satisfied. It's already done its thing. So, it can do no more. And if God punishes you, He would lose more than you because He would lose the claim that He is a just God. You know, guys, um, Hear me. Instead of God's justice, or if I, I let me just use this term, I think it communicates better to the Bible Bill. Um, instead of God's wrath frightening you uh, or being a source of terror for you, there is a sense that there is no greater solace than the wrath of God. Because it has been spent on him. Um, Again, kind of clinically speaking, here's what happens. We fall into some sin or we, we, we do something that we're really quite, quite ashamed of. And, and Satan reminds us of the justice and the wrath of God against sin. His inflexible hatred against sin. And, and then he goes on to remind us that he would be absolutely right in punishing you or me. And we, we deserve it. That's what we ought to get. Absolutely. And so there we sit. Stewing in our juices and going over what we've done. And, you know, I, I, uh, I remember a guy when I was in seminary, and I, I, I'm not trying to um, isolate a certain sin, but I remember he made this statement. Uh, I was doing youth in Louisville, Mississippi, and the guy's name is Steve Wilkins. And, and Steve was speaking to our kids at our church, and, uh, and he said, he was talking to them about sexual sin. And I never will forget, he said, you will never forget. You will never forget you will never forget the details of illicit sexual behavior. And you know what? I bet you that's the truth. I bet you everybody in here (laughs) can remember the details of illicit sexual behavior. But some of us even have a better memory. (laughs) We remember the details (laughs) of all kinds of sin. Um, not just sexual improprieties, but all of them. And so those details begin to be rehearsed in your mind. Yes, God is right. He would be right to judge me. But it's that justice of God that demands that we be fully pardoned because of what God has done in Christ. Therefore, gang, his justice 
is our greatest solace because His justice has been utterly and completely satisfied because He's already scorched the earth, folks. That means He ain't going to scorch it twice. So for us to come under some kind of condemnation now would mean God is not just. So I, I, I hope you can then make the quick next step. Therefore, I'm safe. Because the justice of God will never be forfeited. But that justice has been fully satisfied in another. And his righteousness is mine. Father, I, I do pray that you will uh, assure your people that, that all that you have accomplished legally for your people uh, has satisfied all the demands of your justice. And there is no, uh, there's no scenario, there's no possible set of circumstances that can ever bring us into condemnation. We are in Christ. We are in the one who was scorched for us never to be scorched again. And I, I pray that you will sink that deep into the, the cracks and the crevices of each soul here. That we can live our lives in great gratitude, in great enjoyment of the safety that is ours because of the finished work of Christ. We commit ourselves to that, Father, asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and